Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Chris. So the other night, I was lying in bed doing my ritual where I check news sites before I go to sleep. We have a rule where Chris isn't allowed to make noise in reaction to news stories if they're going to read them in bed, because news before bed makes me very anxious and not able to sleep. Right, and I violated that rule. Uh Uh-huh. By first scoffing loudly, then going, huh, then ha ha ha. And then your phone kept beeping for like ten minutes. Yeah, because my brother and I were discussing the article I was reading. Uh Uh-huh. So, okay, so maybe it's just better to explain what the article was. Well, since you made me read it anyway, how about I read the article title? Okay, sounds good. So here it is. OpenAI's GPT-3 may be the biggest thing since Bitcoin. Okay, so that's some classic Hacker News sounding BS because it was Hacker News sounding BS. So what the heck does that even mean anyway? Well, from the title, I'd take it as having a machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence system interacting for some reason with Bitcoin or comparing it to Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, which seems completely ridiculous. But the article was better than I expected, which isn't to say it was great just reading on its own. But I thought that there was a comment in the comments on Hacker News Um, which I thought was pretty interesting, especially for a Hacker News comment. By the way, it's a bit technical and heavy on the jargon, but stick with us, I promise it'll pay off. Quote, I've started working on a version of GPT-2, which generates English text. The purpose of this is to improve its ability to predict the next character in a text by having it learn grammatical rules for English. It already works well for predicting the next character when it has seen only a small amount of text, but it becomes less accurate as the amount of training text increases. Okay, so this comment's pretty long, so we're going to jump ahead a little bit. One potential issue with this approach is that the text it generates is nonsensical, in that it is almost like a word salad, although this is a standard problem with neural nets and other machine learning algorithms. In this case, the text actually is a word salad. It seems that it has learned the rules of grammar, but not the meaning of words. It is able to string words together in a way that sounds right, but the words don't actually mean anything. Plot twist. This comment was generated by GPT-3, prompted with some of the comments in this thread. End quote. Surprise! Yes, so in other words, both the comment and the article were generated by the machine learning system, GPT-3. An autobiography by GPT-3? Yeah, you could say that. So then we fell down a rabbit hole of looking at other things generated with GPT-3 that were being passed around. Yeah, I think the one that you really reacted to was the legalese one. Yes, what it did was took a plain English description or phrase and turned it into something you might see in an actual legal document. Want to read an example? Sure. So the plain language was... My apartment has mold and it made me sick. And the legal language it transformed that into was... Plaintiff's dwelling was infested with toxic and allergenic mold spores and... Plaintiff was rendered physically incapable of pursuing his or her usual and customary vocation, occupation, and or recreation. Wow, so that's pretty good. So let's read one more. The plain language? My landlord didn't maintain the property. 
and the legal language. The defendants have permitted the real property to fall into disrepair and have failed to comply with state and local health and safety codes and regulations. Right, and there was another example that gave you a prompt for you to say in plain English what you wanted on a web design, and it would develop the relevant JavaScript slash HTML. It really cuts down on the time having to deal with pesky web developers or project managers. You just ask the AI for what you want, and it gives it to you. So let's give a couple of caveats, though. So first of all, we know that these examples and demonstrations are cherry-picked, so... What we're seeing now is not necessarily what you're going to get consistently down the line. Right. And another caveat, neither Morgan nor myself are machine learning or neural network experts in any way, shape, or form. And we're not even planning on getting into the technical details of how these things work on this episode. But we do think developments in machine learning models and neural networks can affect areas that are relevant to this show and our individual areas of expertise. So let's also say right off the bat, there's a lot of hype to this stuff. A few years ago, it sounded like self-driving cars were going to take over all driving. And while that's not off the table for the future, it certainly didn't happen as fast as people predicted. But that doesn't mean this stuff is going away. So let's get into some details. Yes, so what is GPT-3? So GPT-3 is a model which means that it's a neural network pre-trained on a collection of data. But you can't use a model on its own. You're also going to have to use it alongside some general-purpose machine learning algorithms slash software. And in general, most of the machine learning tools used right now are free and open source software. So uh, most popularly TensorFlow, which is under the Apache license, and PyTorch, which is under the BSD3 clause license. So models in this case are really a neural network pre-trained against some large amount of data. So what kind of data does GPT-3 relate to? GPT-3 and its widely used GPT-2 predecessor are both trained on basically a huge amount of text pulled from the internet. So it's specifically about language then? Right. And there are other models trained for images, music, etc. But the reason we wanted to talk about GPT-3 was the difference in licensing between GPT-3 and GPT-2. So difference in licensing so far anyway. While both have been produced by the organization OpenAI, GPT-2 was under the MIT or Expat license. Yeah, so you could go download GPT-2 yourself today. It's about a 5 gigabyte download, so not a small file, but also not ginormous. Right, and by contrast, GPT-3 is only accessible through an API, meaning you can't access the model yourself, you have to talk to OpenAI's server, so... An API-only access for GPT-3 kind of feels like it's not really living up to OpenAI's name. But let's talk about their reasoning. The obvious first answer is money. Right, and they pretty much say that directly on their FAQ page. Quote, First, commercializing the technology helps us pay for ongoing AI research, safety, and policy efforts. End quote. So, it feels like this is the real main reason that motivates them for going to an API-only model, at least for now, but let's look at the other two reasons. Quote, Second, many of the models underlying the API are very large, taking a lot of expertise to develop and deploy, and making them very expensive to run. This makes it hard for anyone except larger companies to benefit from the underlying technology. 
we're hopeful that the API will make powerful AI systems more accessible to the smaller businesses and organizations, end quote. So I don't know about you, but that one doesn't quite make sense to me. It's like they're saying, by restricting access, we're making it more accessible. This totally makes sense. Right. And I mean, it's hard for other organizations to run, maybe, but if you release it, then they still have the option to try. Having it out there won't hurt them, even if they can't succeed right now. So that doesn't preclude having an API. So I don't quite buy this one. Me neither. So again, just reading from the site, the last reason is... Quote, third, the API model allows us to more easily respond to the misuse of technology. Since it is hard to predict the downstream cases of our models, it feels inherently safer to release them via an API and broaden access over time rather than release an open source model where access cannot be adjusted if it turns out to have harmful applications, end quote. So this has merits in its described motivation. But it also creates a centralized surveillance target. Given the broad application of machine learning technology by many organizations, this itself could be abused. Right. And note that they didn't specifically say that they're not going to release it eventually, but it feels like from this phrasing that there's a good chance that it won't happen, at least not anytime soon. So also, we don't really know how GPT-3 is working, how it's running behind the scenes on their servers, etc. And even if OpenAI doesn't release this, then that doesn't really prevent some other organization from developing and releasing something fairly equivalent in the next few years, so this point might be moot anyway. Anyway, since GPT-2 is open and available to run locally, that probably means it's not going to be fully replaced quite so soon. So let's talk about some other interesting applications of neural networks you may have seen in the last few years. ThisPersonDoesNotExist.com generates realistic-looking photos of people that don't exist. Yeah, and over the last few years, Google has gotten their DeepMind project to play Atari games, and at this point, with the Agent 57 project, it's able to exceed human performance pretty consistently in 57 different games. Mozilla has their Common Voice project, where they collect the speech of volunteers to use as a dataset for speech recognition. And one of the big breakthroughs in machine learning was AlphaGo. Could you expand on why AlphaGo got so much attention? So we spent a long time with AI research uh, beating games by feeding in very specific strategies or using programs that kind of spend time logically thinking through um, consistent reasoned ways of stra taking strategy. But the interesting thing is that in Go, a lot of the experts in the fields couldn't really explain why a certain move was so strategic. A lot of the high-level play was gut instinct you know, highly trained gut instinct for, that looks like a good shape on the board. So instead of just extremely logical, high-reasoned programs, which were good at things like chess, what was needed for Go was intuitive thinking, and recent advances in neural networks provided that. Right, and what I'm about to say is a massive oversimplification, but in a sense, human brains are roughly thought of as having a highly logical part of the brain that takes a long time and thinks very carefully about whether or not ideas are consistent and so on and binds them to symbols and etc. But it's kind of slow and thought to be relatively new in brain development and is associated with language. Whereas we also have this other kind of thinking that in the brain that's more intuition-based, kind of the thinking with your gut type approach. 
And that's been around in all sorts of animals for a really long time and seems to work really quickly by comparison. And also, by the way, I am not an expert here, super not an expert here. I recommend Gary Marcus's book, Kluge, spelled K-L-U-G-E, for more on how the human brain was kind of haphazardly evolved, though. So it's kind of ironic, then, that even though it was an older development in nature, it took a long time for us to get a well-performing intuition system for computers. Yep. Though, we should know that these techniques of machine learning and neural nets are pretty old. So, in what ways is this new and not new? There are a lot of kinds of artificial intelligence research, and machine learning is one big category, with neural networks being one specific subcategory slash technique. Um, But neural networks are themselves very old, with research going back to the 1940s, starting to see real implementations in the 1960s, and peaking kind of in the 1970s-ish, when artificial intelligence researchers, for the most part, started moving on to other methods. Uh, But part of what's new now is that there have been some new major algorithmic advances in machine learning technology, but we should also be clear that the other big advancement is raw processing power, right? So... Um, It turns out that graphics processing units on computers that we have today are really, really good at the kind of number crunching that's relevant to machine learning. And massive high-speed computing clusters that we have now um, that you can even just rent out on the internet uh, just weren't an option in the 1970s. But are these new advancements in neural nets really the only techniques? I seem to recall things like chatbots and spam filters being around in the last decade or so, but... I'm guessing these new advancements are more complex. Right. So it's partly that it's a switch in techniques. While um, it was popular to use Markov chain chatbots and Bayesian spam filters in the early 2000s, the amount of advancements that have happened in neural net technology means that most of the cutting edge versions of those things are now using neural nets. But there were some interesting applications of the other aforementioned approaches before this whole pre-neural net resurgence. When we were still in college, there was a postmodernist essay generator, for example, that word-souped a bunch of jargon from postmodernist literature into vaguely coherent essays. Yeah. Um, actually, at one point, I forwarded a link to that website to one of my professors, and then I dropped by her office to talk about something unrelated, and she said that she had clicked the link without reading the rest of my email, started reading the article in earnest, and said, Huh. It was kind of confusing. Hold on. Wait. Maybe it's making sense. Okay. I think I'm getting it. And then she accidentally refreshed the page and realized that the entire article changed. Yeah. And then she actually went back and read the rest of the text of your email, realized what the website was, and thought it was a rather amusing joke. Yeah. But that was like in 2003 and used Markov chains and not neural nets. And we can also say that it wasn't quite as good as the examples we gave at the top of the article but it was still pseudo-convincing. I think it's worth noting that machine learning, and neural networks in particular, have a lot of limitations, especially around being able to explain why they did things. And there are a whole range of other AI approaches with other trade-offs, but which we can't possibly fit in a single episode, and honestly, neural networks aren't even the most interesting to me, but I get really excited about some other ideas like the propagator model and so on, But we're mostly going to hand wave and talk about AI approaches, mostly focused on machine learning and neural networks in particular for the rest of this episode. Right. So 
what are some ways in which we think this can impact our collective work? So there's some interesting application for machine learning in art production. Yeah, so one example I really liked was a comic we both read called Three Panel Soul. This particular strip was called Recursion, and true to its name, it was a demonstration of a machine learning technique applied to itself in the actual comic. Yeah, in this case, the artist was showing off how they could just scribble some awkward colored lines into a black and white sketch, and the program filled in the coloring itself. The key line to me from that comic was, generating game art assets with machine learning is going to be the only way we can do it at scale in the future. Yeah, and as it is, a lot of comic artists currently hire colorists separately. But this means that if we're farming out production anyway, why not farm it out to an AI if available? You might not be able to completely replace a skilled colorist yet, but maybe those jobs will become unavailable. But in a sense, maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing if you consider that in general it's considered the less exciting of the two jobs, even though most colorists are also highly skilled artists and comic producers themselves, so maybe it means they have more time to work on their comics that they want to be doing themselves? Yeah, maybe. If there are jobs for them. Well, it's hard to predict the impact of these things, and maybe we shouldn't pretend that we can. But this seems like the general use case for these AIs. Automatic completion of tasks that may otherwise be tedious. Yeah, though if we keep automating and automating, do you think we'll eventually reach a point that just destroys the value of these crafts? Will everything interesting be automated away? If we take a historical approach, why don't we look at the effect of photography on painting? If a camera can capture photorealism, what's the point of a more labor-intensive and cost-intensive portrait artist? So does that mean that photography killed painting? Well, it might have killed parts of the painting industry, but pushed other parts in new directions. Most people don't get painted portraits in their lifetimes anymore, and photography did take over that aspect, except for maybe the extremely elite getting self-portraits still. But in other aspects, photography pushed artwork in new directions. We get the emergence of surrealism. If photography can capture things just as they are, then painting can go beyond that. Painting things we've never seen before, or abstract expressionism, or impressionism, So we can at least say that photography didn't impede the development of painting and also, in some ways, helped push its boundaries. Right. I got it. So realism in painting is now dead. Thanks, photography. (laughs) Well, hold up a little bit. Not only did realism not entirely disappear from painting, a whole movement, the realism movement, took hold in the 19th century, partially influenced by things the human eye couldn't previously see, which were now captured in photography, such as the series of successive movements of an animal's legs while running. There was also a push to make paintings that felt more real than real. So that doesn't seem so hopeless. Maybe there's a chance for traditional methods and AI to live harmoniously after all? Yeah, I'd like to think so. So we just put out an episode about narrative RPGs, and we mentioned the role of the storyteller, or game master, well... I like running stories in that role, but a frequent complaint I see on the internet is that most people would rather just play the game. Maybe we could automate away the GM? Yeah, so we recently played AI Dungeon 2, which uses GPT-2 to do exactly that. It gives you a bit of a story, 
You say what you want to do next, and it tells you what happens. Then you say what you want to do next, and on and on and on. Yeah, and it did a pretty good job. It even manages to remember some story details. But what I noticed is that there wasn't a lot of pressure for the story to progress or complete. It didn't feel like if I didn't try to resolve problems that the other entities in the stories were motivated in such a way that they would interfere with my plans or make for a compelling plot progression. Yeah. And the whole area of procedural plot generation is an active area of research, and we'll link to some examples in the show notes. So, I'm sure you have some thoughts on the way that machine learning approaches might impact education slash academia. Yeah, so one example is the, is this a real paper problem, which really has two sides. From the grading standpoint, there is the potential for students turning in papers that are really just machine-generated. Yeah, though, is this just another example of outsourcing from a person over to a computer program? I mean, students have been breaking the rules by paying others to write their papers for them for a long time. Now they just might be using a computer program to do that instead. And it seems like the same solution that educators already use when they suspect a student got someone else to write their paper for them is still applicable here. Yeah, so, hey, interesting point you made here in your paper. I'd like to sit down with you and have you explain to me exactly what you meant by that. Yep, and PSA, contrary to students' actions everywhere throughout history, cheating on your education in general only cheats yourself. So the other issue is whether a paper is really written by a knowledgeable scholar or not. Yeah, so that seems kind of like the academic version of, is this fake news? Yep. But let me be the devil's advocate and say, if a computer program can write something that's sufficiently interesting and useful as a contribution to the field, is that really so bad? Well, the problem is telling whether or not it's really making any new arguments or regurgitating existing arguments. But isn't that also a problem in human-written papers, where plenty of scholars might regurgitate all sorts of points by other scholars without making a substantial contribution by themselves? Yes, but based on the way that neural networks currently work, it might be hard for it to cite its own sources. Yeah, and that ties into the aforementioned general problem that neural networks have which is that they don't tend to be very good at explaining why they made a particular decision, which is also related to why they're so hard to debug. And there's also some potential for using machine learning for grading. Ah, so an automatic teaching assistant, eh? But doesn't that mean that this automatic TA might also, in just auto-grading things, Um, have some unexamined amplification of hidden sexist slash racist slash etc. biases that we know sometimes show up with the way that people grade papers today? Yes, that is always a challenge here, as with everything. But I also object to the term automatic TA because it might save a lot of time to do grading assisted by an AI, but uh, the other primary job that TAs do is typically discussion sections and labs, in the American university system at least, uh, which are the primary interactive parts of a lot of classroom settings. These in turn foster critical thinking in ways that are often difficult to accomplish with lectures and homework alone. 
In fact, one of the biggest criticisms of modern education structures, and as a person with ADD, I'm certainly one of these critics, is that they tend to be too top-down and focused on grading through standardized tests and rote memorization. Yep, I totally agree. Okay, so... Another use is that there's a lot of academic projects that have tons and tons of data to sort through. Could it be helpful to apply machine learning type approaches to pull out the relevant information? Absolutely, and that work is already being done and applied. Okay, so it seems like even outside of academia, that's already one of the primary ways that machine learning is being used to sort information and identify patterns, but but it feels like some of the more anxiety-inducing uses are to produce judgment calls that may severely impact a person's life, such as determining someone's credit score or deciding the outcome of a court case. Yeah, machine learning's tendency to inherit biases, such as racism, sexism, classism, etc., means that your AI is only as impartial as the source material, especially in a machine learning environment. Additionally, fake news is obviously a big concern, and I think it's really pretty much the same concern here as with generating BS academic articles. So I suspect that you would like to talk about the ways we could see all of this impacting free and open source software and computer programming. Yeah, and I think there's the whole question of what is the license of the model you're using? And we've seen some freely licensed models being released, such as GPT-2, which we have already discussed. But I feel like there's a whole discussion to be had around source code requirements in some licenses. Like, what the heck does that mean when you apply that to uh, a computer program not hand-generated by humans? Yes, but that seems like a very broad topic and worthy of its own episode, maybe. Good point. So, machine learning models have been increasingly used to detect spam and abuse. But, in the reverse direction, as those same systems get better at generating human-like content, that's also going to make these problems harder and harder to detect. I think programming-wise, we already mentioned one demo that uses GPT-3 for code generation, and there are some others out there, and I think we're just going to see more and more like that. Seems like many ideas about free and open source software have really been built around the idea of a programmer sitting behind a keyboard and crafting programs. So what happens when it's just a computer and not a human writing the software? Does our concept of free and open source software even make sense anymore? So I do think we need to do some rethinking about free and open source software in the context of automatic program generation. But if our goal is user freedom and agency, it's not like user freedom concerns just disappear if code is auto-generated, especially in terms of problems like privacy, the right to be able to copy and distribute and modify the source program, even if a person didn't write it or, and it's just some sort of model, and so on. So yeah, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, and... Uh, Kind of along these lines of programs, programming programs, there was a new paper out today titled Discovering Reinforcement Learning Algorithms, which used a reinforcement learning algorithm to discover new reinforcement learning algorithms. And according to the paper, it seems like they've had pretty good results. So, machines learning to learn. Right, and that's actually even the name of the category of that work. So, are machine learning people going to just program themselves out of jobs? Well, isn't that the general fear that people tend to approach this stuff with, right? My job's going to be automated away, and oh no, now I'm irrelevant? Well, let's face it, jobs have been being automated away since the start of civilization. 
Even moving to an agrarian society can be seen as a form of automation because the food is being planted right there, so there's no need to go out and forage. But on the other hand, there is need for someone to go and plant the seeds, so there's new job growth in agriculture. Yeah, but knowledge workers have been used to being immune to automation. So, is everything over? Is this just the end of jobs? Well, I think it's tempting to say yes, and then panic, and then say, we should just ban all this stuff. But I also think you can't really stop technical advancement and roll back the clock once these things have been developed. But we can try to to be actively responsible for how we build things and the ways we apply them. So, we've already acknowledged that automation is not new, but are we reaching the point where automation itself becomes unethical? Well, I mean, is that a classist standpoint? Like, it's okay to automate away shoemakers and factory workers and retail workers and secretaries, but now that it's programmers that might have their jobs automated away, suddenly it's unethical? Yeah, okay. Fair point. But, you know, a different perspective. How about it's not just a future of humans versus machines, but kind of the merging of humans and machines. I mean, in a certain sense, the distinction between me and the collection of files on my laptop and my phone seems smaller and smaller all the time. Yeah, I mean, who is Chris Lemmerweber without org mode? An unorganized mess, clearly. Okay, so also I'm gonna break to nerd out here. This also reminds me of the hologram revolution on Star Trek Voyager, where they basically had just automated away all of the cleaning and custodial jobs that humanoids didn't want to do with holograms, but then the holograms ran long enough that they began to develop their own interests and desires, and now you've reintroduced a form of slavery. So how intelligent is our artificial intelligence? Yeah, so that's pretty science fiction-y, and I don't think we're at a point where we have to extend our spheres of empathy to computer programs yet, but I do personally think that a decent ethical framework has to be capable of doing so since we don't really know when that will happen. And obviously we're nerds, but we do think that we should assume that we'll cross that threshold at some point. So, before we wrap up, we wanted to reference a clip that's gone around the internet a bunch. You may have seen it. It has Miyazaki, the famed Japanese animator and director. So, in this clip... You see some young developers eagerly showing off a zombie character that's moving around with some AI-generated animation, and they're kind of bragging about, uh, look, it's using its head as a leg. It didn't know that it wasn't appropriate to use its head as a leg, so it's making this kind of cool, really creepy walk. But the quote that gets thrown around the internet gets quoted out of context, and the parts you tend to hear are Miyazaki saying, I am utterly disgusted. I would never wish to incorporate this technology into my work at all. I strongly feel that this is an insult to life itself. And the developers are tearing up. And in places you tend to see it quoted, people are like, Oh, sick burn! Miyazaki sure showed those developers! But it's missing context. So we wanted to read the entire quote translated from the Japanese. Well, every morning, not recent days... But I see my friend who has a disability. It's so hard for him just to do a high five. His arm, with stiff muscle, reaching out to my hand. Now, thinking of him, I can't watch this stuff and find it interesting. 
Whoever creates this stuff has no idea what pain is whatsoever. I am utterly disgusted. If you really want to make creepy stuff, you can go ahead and do it. I would never wish to incorporate this technology into my work at all. I strongly feel that this is an insult to life itself. Now with that context, what felt important to us was that he was really pointing out how these young developers were just like, haha, cool, look at this, it's a cool toy, and doing it because they can, and not really thinking about the consequences. And Miyazaki saw the human equivalent in his friend. I think that's kind of how we feel about this technology, but, you know, in a sense, kind of universally old technology, especially new technologies that get introduced, that a tool is a tool, but it's important to think about the impact that tools have on people and how we choose to use them. So, on that note, I guess it's time to sign off for the evening. Thank you, uh, and see you next time, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. The more you know. (laughs) Maybe we'll just skip the more you know thing. Yeah, I don't think we can laugh realistically now. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) Okay, well, we know what the blooper is for the episode. Thanks, Uh, bloop. (laughs) uh, um, Yeah, literally a blooper. Stop Uh, blooping into our bloopers.